Well, take your Bibles with me today and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 once again. As we continue in this section, verses 1 to 13 is a context. We're looking at verses 5 on down today. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and uh, verse 5 in just a moment or two. Uh, you may have heard the story of the old couple who are beginning to forget things, so they went to the doctor to check it out to see if there were some problems. And the doctor said, you don't really have any physical problems, but you are forgetting things, and that happens. Uh, you ought to start writing things down, just to give yourself notes and so forth to, to remember things. And so they thanked him, they went home. That night they, had, uh, they were uh, watching television, and the old man got up to go get himself some ice cream. And his wife said, uh, so where are you going? He said, I'm going to get some ice cream. And she said to her husband, well, get me some too, but you better write it down, you'll forget. He said, I will not forget your ice cream. She said, but I want strawberries on it as well. You better write it down, or you'll forget. He said, I won't forget. And then he took another step or two and said, I also want whipped cream on it. You better write it down, or you'll forget. And he was irritated by now, and he fumed off, said, I will not forget. And he went back to the kitchen. He was there about, for about 20 minutes. And he came back with the bacon and eggs. <laughs> and she looked at the bacon and eggs for a moment or two and looked up and said, you forgot my toast. <laughs> you know. Well, all of us have problems with memories at times, right? We're losing things, we're misplacing things, that's a common thing. But it gets much more serious when we're looking at life. Uh, the famous quote that goes this way, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Most of you have heard that. Maybe Woody Allen, the comedian, was more accurate when he says history repeats itself. It has to. Nobody listens the first time around. And then Cicero, the famous philosopher from the past, said uh, that uh, not, not to know what happened before you were born is to remain a child forever. And that's a good thought. Scripture often warns believers about the past, the pitfalls of the past, by using examples from people in the past, is constantly turning to that in the Old Testament in particular, which we'll be looking at today. It wants to call us to uh, the past so that we avoid the mistakes and the sins and the pitfalls of the past. Uh, one of the prime examples of that is found right here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And as we looked at last time, Paul, first of all, rehearses the privileges that the people of Israel had uh, in the first four verses, he said that they had, they had God's guidance, they had God's protection, they, they had God's hand-picked leader in Moses, they had physical and spiritual provisions that God had given them, and yet, verse 5, they failed miserably, and that very sad word, nevertheless, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. With all the privileges, they failed. Now the reason why this is being given to us is not to discourage us, but to instruct us. Look down at verse 11, where it says, These things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. For our instruction, the church age believers, these things have been written as an example for us, as instruction to us. Uh, it's, it's a warning to us. It's trying to keep us from falling in those ways. Like, like any warning sign that says, you know, it's slippery when wet, or there's a sharp turn in the road up ahead, or the cliffs are there, don't fall off. These warning signs are there for us to be warned so that we do not fall, so they do not self-destruct. And so the scriptures are doing exactly that, and 1 Corinthians 10 is a prime example. Paul starts off here in verses 6 through 11 by talk, giving us examples, five of them to be clear, 
examples of failure in the Old Testament. And folks, if you don't know your Old Testament, then you're not, you're not going to be able to understand uh, the, the teachings of the New Testament in many cases. And so Paul takes them back to the Old Testament in five different occasions and warns them, and it, for, so warns us and instructs us about the things that could derail our Christian lives. So he gives these five warning signs. Let's take a look at them uh, together. We start off with they, they craved evil things in verse 6. Now these things happen as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Now we're going to go back to Numbers chapter 11. I do not have time to go through back to all five of these Old Testament passages. We'll look at two of them together. Uh, but, and we'll look at Numbers chapter 11 on this occasion. Uh, I hope in your small groups today as you come together in the small groups that you can go back and look at some of these other passages together and, uh, and build on them, but I will give you the overview of them. This first one goes back to Numbers chapter 11 and actually verses 1 to 6, but we'll, we'll look at verse 4 on down. The people are complaining like they often complained. And uh, in, in verse 4, it says this, The rabble who were among them had greedy desires, and also the sons of Israel wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? We remembered the fish which we used to eat in Egypt, eat free in Egypt, the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. But now our appetite is gone. There's nothing at all to look at except this manna. Now that doesn't sound like a uh, terribly difficult thing, does it? It doesn't sound terribly sinful. They, they wanted more food. They wanted a different diet. Uh, and yet, Paul brings this out as one of the examples of craving evil things. Well, well what is the problem here? The problem is they craved the food of Egypt, uh, which again doesn't sound so bad, but they were desiring things out of God's will. They, they desired that which was not given to them by God. They desired things that were not part of his will. Every morning when God first gave them the manna, you remember, uh, it was a miracle. Every morning they went out and gathered manna to feed them. This was a, a, a miracle from God. And for years and years and years, for decades, God fed them in this way. And at first they loved it. It was delicious. It tasted like honey. And they were impressed by that great miracle. But by the time we get here, they're sick and tired of it. And by the time we get to Numbers chapter 21, verse 5, they call it this miserable food. So what happened to the manna? Well, nothing happened to the manna, but something had happened to them. They had uh, begun to, to take that which was, was the precious miracle of God, and it had become commonplace to them. It no longer held any mystery to them. It no longer held any wonder for them. They no longer appreciated and, and thanked God for the miracle that God gave them every day. Instead of that, they, they let it become stale in, in their own thoughts and their minds. Uh, they, they had a bad case of what have you done for me lately disease. God hadn't done anything that they wanted him to do at that time. So they had these privileges and they took them for granted until they came to the place that they no longer appreciated it, and they grumbled and complained and grieved and craved the things God did not want them to have. But maybe in our own lives we can do the same thing. You know, there was a time perhaps that uh, you craved prayer and you appreciated the privilege of going before God, but you've gotten used to it. Uh, maybe there was a time when you really loved the study of God's Word and couldn't get enough of it, but now it's kind of old hat. 
Maybe there was a time when you couldn't wait to serve God in some special way, but now you don't do much of that. Maybe that's the case for some of you. And if so, you can plug right in with what's going on here. You're taking the privileges of God for granted, and you're allowing yourself to follow into a pattern that is leading you in the wrong direction. When the child of God, get this, gets bored with the things of God, he will soon crave the things that are outside of the will of God. Let me repeat that for you. When, when the child of God gets bored with the things of God, he will soon crave that which is outside of the will of God. And that's exactly what these people were doing, exactly what God is talking about through the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. You know, God always meets us on the level of our desires. Uh, if you don't believe that, go back and see what Jesus said in Matthew. Jesus said, if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you will be satisfied. It says in other places of the Old Testament, he satisfies the longing soul and fills the hungry with good things. God meets us on the level of our desires. But if we desire something that's out of his will, he may give that to you too. And then you pay the consequences for what he's given you, as Israel had done here. I think it would be a wise takeaway right now for us all to think about our longings, our desires. To Give that some thought this afternoon, maybe in the small groups. Uh, what is it that you desire? Take inventory of what you crave, what you desire, what you want. Our longings will determine the direction of our lives. Now, we're going back quickly, but I'm going to come right back to Exodus, so don't go too far. But going back to the passage, here's a second example, and that is in verse 7. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As is written, the people sat down to eat and drink, and they stood up to play. Now go back with me to Exodus chapter 32. This is the, the second passage we'll look at. This is pretty familiar to you, Exodus chapter 32. I want to read the first six verses for you and follow along if you would. Exodus 32 verses 1 through 6. Now when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain. Now remember he's on the mountain now. He's up there getting the Ten Commandments. The people assembled about Aaron and said to him, Come, make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And Aaron said to them, Tear off the gold rings which is in your ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. And all the people tore off the gold rings which are in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he took this from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molded calf. And he said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before him for it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. So the next day they rose up early, offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink, and they rose up to play. This is the passage that Paul is referencing here. Uh, these people had come out of Egypt, where they had been for 400 years. They were now moving into a pagan land. They did not want the faith, the religion, the, spirit, the, 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 the walk with God that God was offering. They didn't want a God they couldn't see. They didn't want a God they couldn't touch. They didn't, want the, the, they didn't want sacrifices and, and laws and, and regulations that would govern their lives before a holy God. They wanted what they had been used to in Egypt. 
They wanted what they saw in the pagan lands they were going through. And therefore, very early on in their pilgrimage, they began to say, this is not the religion we thought it was. This is not the God we thought it was. And we don't know what's happened to Moses. And so, as we know the story, they, they, they went to, uh, as it says here in these verses, they began to eat and to drink and to, they rose up to play, which has sexual connotations. We find that when Moses is gone, they don't know where he is, they revert back to what their heart was doing in the first place. It's kind of like the, the young person that goes off to college or goes off to military or moves to another part of the world. They've been raised in a good home, they've been raised in a good church, but when they get away from that controlling environment, if their heart is not right with God, they revert right back to where their heart really would take them. And that's what the people of Israel are doing. Uh, their hearts haven't been changed. They've been under the control of Moses, so to speak, but they are, their hearts have not been changed. And as soon as he's gone for a month or so, they immediately revert back to where their hearts really were. And we see here that there, as one pastor said from years ago, they substituted playtime for prayer time, indulgence for reality. They took the sacrifice out of their religion and they made it a comfortable and easy. Now what I want you to see here is this. These people would consider what they were doing right here as a religious service. They're, they're worshiping God. You notice that? Notice, follow along with me as, as we see what they're doing in verse 6, for example. They're going to have a feast. And so the next day they rose early. So they got up early for church. They didn't sleep in. They got up early. They offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. That's a, a worship style, you know. The people sat down to eat and drink. They're, they're fellowshipping together around food, something we do all the time. And they rose up to play, which had sexual connotations. So now they're moving off page. But they started with a religious service, a worship service. As a matter of fact, if you, if you notice in verse 5, he said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And that word Lord there is Yahweh, Jehovah. They haven't even renamed their gods. These very molded images that they have, these calves, they're calling Jehovah. And Jehovah brought them out of Egypt. But it's not the same God. It's a different God, a God of their own creation, a God that they have made up on their own. But they think they're worshiping God. These are the inviting faith, the, the attraction, attractive faith, the entertaining faith that, that pleases the flesh but doesn't please God. And therefore, we find that the Lord says they move into idolatry at the very, I want you to catch this, at the very time when they would say they were worshiping Jehovah God. That's frightening, isn't it? As you move around from uh, to religious services, internet stuff, churches to churches, and people talk, are talking around the things of God, are they really talking about the true God and what he truly teaches? That's very important to check out. These people would believe, would believe they're following Jehovah, just in a different form. They're okay, but they weren't okay. They were idolaters. They were worshiping the gods of their own creation. And so he warns us about that. And let's go back to the next one, verse 8. There's immorality. He says here in verse 8 of 1 Corinthians 10, Nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. We're not going to go back to Numbers 25 verses 1 to 9 here, but this was back in the, in the days 
of Balaam. Remember Balaam? Everybody, even unsaved people who never read the Bible knows about Balaam and their don his donkey, right? That's a great story. But the story was this. Uh, the Moabites had hired Balaam to curse Israel. And he tried the best he could to curse Israel. And God would not let him. And so what he couldn't do through cursing, he did by teaching the people how to corrupt Israel. And they corrupted Israel by, by bringing their daughters to the sons of Israel and intermarrying and inter having interrelationships in such a way that the people of Israel was drug away from the truth of God. And he corrupted them in that sense. And that's what's going on here. And immorality was a major part of that corruption. Immorality and idolatry goes together throughout Scripture. It's, they're, they're, they're linked. It's not unusual at all for when you're worshiping the wrong God that there's immoral behavior because immorality is a great substitute for God. Have you ever thought about that? Immorality is to the soul what junk food is to the body. And many of us eat too much junk food. I won't take a, a census on that, but uh, most of us eat too much junk food. And as a result of that, we gain too much weight. And as a result of that, we have some health issues. And so junk food becomes a substitute for good food because it does the same basic thing. It fills us up. It seems to satisfy us, but long-term it harms us. Immorality does much of what the true faith does. It, it gives us a momentary satisfaction that seems to be just fine until it comes back to destroy us. And so he warns of immorality. Next, verse 9, he says he talks about testing. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. Now you remember that story as well. He's talking about the, in Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 to 6. In that passage of scripture, the people tested God. And God sent these poisonous snakes among them that would bite them and they would die. And that's the story he's talking about here. They're testing God. They're trying God. Think about, why would you test God? Well, they were going to try to see how far they could push God before God would push back. That's human nature, isn't it? God is a gracious God. God is a patient God. God is a long-suffering God. So how far can we push him before he really steps up and does something? What an awful thinking, the way to think, right? Uh, we find that's human nature, though. We find that if we have kids, anybody who has children, they know by the time the ch child is crawling, they're already testing the parents. And they don't stop for a long time, like 50 or 60 years. Okay? They keep testing the parents. So this little, little junior is testing the parents. How far can I go before mommy stops me? All right? And when they get older, the kid is playing in the room, and mom comes along and says, Junior, it's time for supper. Let's go. And junior ignores her. She comes back two minutes later and says, It's time. He ignores her. He says, I'm going to count to three. When I get to three, you better be moving, buster. One, he doesn't flinch. Two, eh, three, mm, doesn't move again. So what happens? Mama gets angry. I heard a story once of a little boy who had some friends and said uh, he wasn't obeying his mother, and the friends said, why not? And she said, I don't have to move until I mommy uses her angry voice. See, we train our children when we're serious, right? Those are bad cho choices, by the way, if you're a parent. Don't train your children to disobey up to a point when you get mad. Not a good choice. 
These people were testing God because God was so gracious to them, so kind to them, so patient with them. And so they pushed the envelope as far as they could. But, but we find in our passage, ultimately, they, were, they suffered the consequences in the form of these serpents at that time. And then we have one more example in verse 10 of grumbling. And our grumble is some of them dead and were destroyed by the destroyer. Most likely this is a reference to Numbers 16. It's a long chapter and we can't go there. You might look at it later. But that's where Korah led perhaps the greatest rebellion in all of the history of Israel during the wilderness time. And he led a charge against Moses and Aaron and tried to take over. God opens up the ground, swallows him and all the rebellious people up. And then proving that God is God and Moses is his leader. And then we find a most interesting verse. You might jot this down and look at it later. Numbers 16.41. The very next day they came grumbling about Moses who had destroyed God's people. I want you to think about that. God himself just destroyed hundreds of people who rebelled against him and Moses. Moses said, I'm going to draw a line in the sand. I'm going to show you who, who is God's leader. God is going to destroy one of us. He destroyed Korah and his gang. The next day, they're grumbling about God and Moses. And this is the example that he's using here in verse 10. As some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Well, these are pretty ugly pictures, aren't they? So I'm not going to, I'm not going to stop here. Aren't you glad? These are awful examples of uh, failure on the part of the people of Israel. He's writing these things, though, not to depress us, but to show us the need to be warned so that we do not fall in the same traps they fell into. And so that's what we're looking at now. This kind of failure does not have to be true of us. The Lord promises a means of escape for us. And that's when he moves into verses 12 and 13, two of the most precious verses in the New Testament when it comes to temptations and trials and sin. As we look at these verses together, we must look at the fact that we need to apply Scripture. So as we talk about the Word of God, as we study doctrine, theology, truth, as we read the Bible, friends, it is of no value whatsoever if you don't apply it. You can have your head all filled with a bunch of theology, but if you don't apply it to your life, it does no good. Matter of fact, it's detrimental. Because you get a big head and you think you're spiritual when you're not. Application of the word of God is essential. And so as Paul says, here's the warning signs to you. Here's the things you don't want to do. Now he moves on to talk about what we can do so that we don't go that direction. Here's the application. And as he does that, uh, we're looking at these privileged people, verses 1 to 5, who have, who have despised all the privileges and went the wrong direction. And we kind of think it's almost like a, like a privileged rich kid who has rejected all the privileges of his family and gone out and lived on the streets and tells people he's homeless. It's ridiculous. And yet that is what they've done. So what should we do about that? What does Paul say through the inspiration of the Spirit? He lays out for us, folks, four truths in reference to temptations of the type that sunk Israel and it will sink us. Four truths in these passages. You ought to know what they are. You ought to write them in your Bibles. You definitely ought to write them in your hearts. Number one, anyone can fall. Verse 12, anyone can fall. Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed 
that he does not fall. This is what Paul's been leading up to through chapters 10, 9 and 10. There's always a danger of falling, folks. Uh, I don't care how long you've been a Christian, how mature you are in Christ, how, much, how many Bible verses you've memorized, how many times you read through the Bible, there's always the danger of stumbling and falling. And Scripture never minimizes that in the least. Keep in mind now, he's not talking about salvation. Our salvation is secure in Christ. He's talking about living in such a way that we're having victory in Christ. Go back up to 927, the controlling verse for both chapters. 927, but I discipline my body, make it my slave, so that after I preach to others, I myself will not be disqualified. When the Greek athlete, and he was using that metaphor, when the Greek athlete uh, was disqualified from the games, they didn't lose their citizenship. They lost their reward. And because they lost their reward, they, they brought shame on themselves, and they brought shame on their people, their cities. When the Jews failed God, they did not cease to be God's people. They did not cease to be a nation. God had given a covenant to them, and he would not renege on that covenant. But they lost their reward, and they paid horrible prices for the things that they did. When you and I fall for Christians, we do not lose our salvation. I want to get that down very clearly. And if you have any issues with that, any questions about that, any, if you need proof of that in Scripture, I'll be glad to set you down and give you whole reams of information that tells you if you're a Christian, you cannot fall out of his love. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. And that's a great thing. But he is talking about, instead, our lives. When we fall as Christians, are there going to be consequences? We're going to lack, for example, purpose. How can you have a purpose as a Christian when you're not walking with the one who has saved you? He didn't save you for you to continue in your sins. You're going to, you're going to start patterns and habits that will become ingrained in your nature your personality, your lifestyle, to such a degree that, that you'll look back someday and say, how did I get here? How is it that I do this? How it, why is it I think this way? Why, why is it that I, I have these patterns of, of behavior? I don't remember how I got here. Well, no, because you've been so long in this pattern, this habit that you don't remember. If you abandon God's way, you will lack his guidance. How can you have his guidance? How can you be in his will when you're just wandering around outside of it? If you fall, you will lose your reward. We see that in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. You'll be saved, yet so as by fire, it says there. You'll get in heaven, you'll be saved, but you'll lose all the reward that God intended for you to have. Major consequences for falling and staying in your sin. Forgiveness is always available repentance as we turn to him and he and we confess our sin he forgives our sins but if we fall and stay there there are great consequences to that so how careful we have to be so that we do not fall salvation even godly maturity does not insulate you against falling that's what he's saying here Howard Hendricks, longtime beloved professor at Dallas Seminary, did a survey once. I think he used his students to do this big survey. It, they, they identified 246 
Christian leaders and pastors who had fallen into immorality over a two-year period. Now think about that. And that's not the modern times, the last few years, when every other day you hear about somebody else falling. 246. They did these surveys. What, what happened? And there's one common denominator in all 246. Not a one of them believed they could fall morally. And yet everyone did. Never get comfortable. Never believe you're beyond sin. Never believe you're beyond falling. That's what he warns us about here. Pride will, will, will torpedo us every time. But he doesn't leave us on this still kind of a sour note. He now moves on to a very positive thing. What can we do with our temptations here? So he moves on to this beloved verse 13. What a great, we're so grateful God put this verse in his word. Let me read it to you. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, that you may be able to endure it. The first truth is you must realize that you can always stumble and fall. Never get to the place you believe you can't or you will. Number two, our, your temptations, our temptations are not unusual. They're not unique. Verse 13 again, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. When I was going to Bible college, I had a good friend who, who was moping around pretty heavily, and some of us got, got to talking to him and finding out what's going on. And he said, uh, you know, uh, my problem is I believe I am more tempted than anybody else in this whole school when it comes to lust. There's nobody like me. And we assured him he wasn't unique. His sin was not unusual. It was very common. If you think you've got a particular kind of, of temptation that nobody else has, you are wrong. Your temptations are, be, are shared by multitudes of people, even the very, very type, kind of temptation you have is shared by multitudes of people. It is not unusual. And your temptations are not unusual. The word overtake here uh, describes a situation which, in which seize and hold somebody by, and grasping them. Did you, did you ever say to yourself, as you're facing some special temptation, I can't help myself. The temptation is too strong. It's unbearable. I can't, I can't do anything but sin. And Paul is saying here to you, you're wrong. That is not true. All of mankind, all humanity faces similar temptations. And they're never beyond the strength and the power of God to help us get through them. Third truth. God is in control of your situation. God is in control of your situation. Anyone can fall. Our temptations are not unique. And God is in control. Look at verse 13 once again. He says, And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. Well, God does not tempt us with sin. We know that. But temptations come from our flesh. They come from the world. They come from the devil. And he says here that God is in control of those circumstances and those temptations. And he is faithful to what he's promised. The best biblical example perhaps is Job. Remember Job was tempted by the devil himself. And God allowed Satan to a certain point to tempt Job. And yet he controlled the boundaries. Satan could only go so far. 
He could only do so much. The boundaries were controlled by God, and God is faithful. Satan was attempting to destroy Job. God was working to refine Job. You see the difference? Temptations can be used by God to refine us, to, to purify us, to purge us of sin. Satan wants to, wants to destroy. God wants to shape in such a way that these temptations actually refine us. But the main point here is this. God has promised to protect you. God has, has promised never to abandon you, never to walk away, never to say, I'm tired of you. <laughs> I'm tired of the way you mess around. I'm tired that you're not going forward. I'm just done with you. God has promised never to do that. He is faithful. And this is a world in which we live where very few people, very few things are faithful. The one in, in, being in the whole universe that we can never question is faithfulness is God, and he's promised to be faithful. And then the fourth truth is that escape is possible. Anyone can fall. Our temptations are not unique. God is in control. And finally, escape is possible. In verse 13, he says, But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, that you may be able to endure it. It says here that God always provides a way of escape. Notice here though in verse this verse he says, but with the temptation. That word, that little preposition is important here. He doesn't say that the temptation is necessarily going to vanish. It might. It might not. But with the temptation, when it comes, he will provide the way of escape. So that we meet it successfully. Remember what the Lord said in what we call the Lord's Prayer? One of, one of the pieces that sometimes we get confused by. He says, pray, that, pray this way. Lead us not into temptation. Have you ever thought about what that means? What does it mean to pray to God, lead us not into temptation? Especially when, when he's promised never to tempt us with sin. What, what could he be, be saying here? I think that what Jesus is saying is, and this is how that prayer might be answered, one of two ways. Number one, we're asking the Lord to keep certain temptations away in which we think we would fall. Lord, I know certain things are, I'm vulnerable. I know I'm very weak there. Lord, would you keep those things away from me? Would you guard me from those things? Would you guard me from that person? Would you guard me from those attitudes? Would, would, you, would you help me in that area? Secondly, we're, we're, we're asking the Lord here to provide that escape hatch, that means of escape. And what our promise is here is there's always a, a way of escape. We're never boxed in. We're never at a place where we cannot have victory. We're, there's always a way of escape. The way of escape is interesting here. In the classical Greek, it meant a way out of the sea. And it spoke of a landing place. So get the picture. Here's what, here's what they would see. It would be like, like being in a ship on a storm. And the waves are rolling in and you're being tossed here and there. And then there's a harbor up ahead where there's safety and, and peace and security. And that is the way of, that's what the word way of escape means. You're in the storm, but there's a harbor ahead. And God has promised to provide that harbor for you and I. 
But then he goes on, one more thing here, so that you may be able to endure it. That's, the word endure is different than the word escape. It's not the same word at all. The, that what he's saying is this, sometimes, sometimes the temptations cannot be removed. Sometimes there's no way around the temptations. You're stuck. You're there. You may be, maybe you're in a toxic work environment and you can't get out of it. Maybe you're, you have a family situation that is, is almost unbearable. Maybe you're involved with a, an abusive person, abusive bully who's causing harm. Maybe, maybe you have a persistent health issue and it's not going to go away. You're still dealing with it. It may be there for the entirety of your life. So he's not promising that we can always just have these things vanish. But he does promise this, that we will be able to endure it. The strength, the power of the faithful God to enable us to endure whatever comes our way is the promise that God gives us here. And so we have these wonderful truths that we can cling to. Anyone can fall. Our temptations are not unique. God is in control. Escape is possible. I, I fear that too many Christians just kind of give in to their circumstances, their fears, their, their temptations, and kind of, kind of mellow out and become kind of like Israel, just kind of go, going along for the ride, kind of get dull, and just don't progress in the Christian life. It's never meant to be that way. There's an old Danish, Danish fable about a bunch of geese in a barnyard. They lived in this barnyard, and every Sunday they gathered around the water, the food trough, and, and the preacher goose sat up on a fence and preached to the rest of the geese. And as he preached to the geese, he would, he would tell them all sorts of wonderful things about the glories of goosedom, and how wonderful it is that they weren't turkeys or chickens. They were geese. And the, and the glorious lit, uh, heritage they had and the wonderful destiny that was theirs and they would all be listening really well to the preacher goose. And then flying overhead would be a bunch of wild geese that would fly over. And the geese would look up, the barnyard geese would look up and somehow they said, that's what we ought to be doing. <laughs> we shouldn't be in this stinking barnyard. We should be flying. We should be, we should be like them. And then as the geese flew away and the, and the noise stopped, the honking stopped, they returned back to their barnyard and said, oh well, we'll just be barnyard geese. And they never left the barnyard. Folks, God didn't save you to keep you in the barnyard. He, he didn't save you so that you just muddle through this the, and, and be happy you're not something else. He saved you that you might fly with him, to soar with him, to know him, to, in, to enjoy him to proclaim him. And we can only do that when we have victory over these kinds of temptations. And so he places in his word these powerful truths to enable us to win the victory. Let's pray. Father, thank you now for your truth of your word, the strength that is here for us, Lord. How grateful we are that you have provided means of escape, means of endurance, means of, of, of living as you want us to live. Lord, we know times... We've, at times we fail, and we also know you're a forgiving and gracious God, but we, Lord, we don't have to live constantly in failure in the barnyard of life, but that we can live with you and soar with you as you intended. We pray in Jesus' name.
Amen.